Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name's Podcast Mike. We are now halfway through our Willosophies compilation series. This is episode 6 of 12. They'll be out Tuesdays and Thursdays over the next coming weeks. Today's theme is comedy again. Now, our first episode was on comedy. There's so many comedians that Will has chatted to over the last few years of the podcast that we thought we'd do two episodes on this theme. Remember, the idea of these chats is to highlight the array of guests and the array of content that has been a part of this podcast over the last few years. So if you do like any of the chats that you've heard or that you hear today, feel free to check out the entire episode at tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com, or any of your favorite podcasting apps on your phone. Uh, follow our socials, Willosophy Pod, P-O-D, on Twitter and Instagram, where we post updates and you can tweet about the show and tell your friends and all that kind of thing that helps the show go along. Uh, but over to our guests for today's episodes, you will hear from English stand-up comedian and actress Tiff Stevenson, who spoke to Will back in October of 2017. You'll also hear from Tim Ferguson, part of the Doug Anthony All-Stars. But first up, it's Mark Marin, who is a very, very successful comedian and podcaster from America, you may have heard his podcast WTF with Mark Marin. Mark spoke to Will all the way back in September of 2015, diving deep into the archive for this one, and it's a great chat. Uh, if you want to see Will live, he is doing work in progress shows at the Comedy Store in Sydney from December 7th to December 15th. WillAnderson.com for more information and to get yourself some tickets. But for now, over to Mark Marin. Enjoy. now that come from the TV show who know I'm a comic, but they know I'm a comic, but that might not be the way they were introduced to me. It's interesting to me. uh, Does it worry you how other people label you or determine you? Because I I have a weird reaction back home. I host a television show, but whenever I'm referred to as a television show host in front of being referred to as a stand-up comedian, it's still to this day, 20 years into doing this, I have this little problem with that and where I want to have a fight with this person who is not being mean to me in any way. Yeah, they don't understand what they've just done, that they've insulted our (laughs) life, our core that we are, we identify, like, well, when you become a stand-up and you are a stand-up, it's almost like being in the military in some way, that there's right. an honor to it in our head and that we're serving something higher than ourselves and that is a, it is a courageous and noble undertaking. And that's how we identify ourselves. So when someone goes like, hey, you're a pretty good TV show host, like, what do you, you don't even know. <laughs> Have you seen me do stand-up? I, I, I do that inside you know, but now because of the TV show and because of the podcast, if people like it comes to the point where they like, you know, I like your show and I, part of me is sort of like, well, which one? So I can somehow qualify it. Uh, but uh, I don't do that anymore because it's a it's an age old thing. It's the same even as a stand up, you know, that that famous joke. I don't know. It's been framed a lot of different ways where the the comics in a town. You know the joke? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's yeah. That? No, but I mean, this is for not just for me, Mark. This is for the audience as well. So t- like I, it's this, like, I love this story. Maybe it's a Saturday after the Friday night, two right. shows, and he's at the mall walking around because that's what you do when you're in a strange town. And uh, someone comes up to him. And uh, uh, it was a woman. A woman comes up to the com and goes, hey, uh, you're, you're really funny. I saw you last night. Uh, you want to have sex? 
And the comic says, which show? First or second? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you want to know. <laughs> what, you want to know what? What she, what, you, what, what she reacted to? Is it a sympathy fuck? Can we say that? Yeah, we or, can definitely <laughs> say that. Or is it, uh, is it a star fuck? I, I, no, I just want to know how much I want like, to, like, if it's the really good show, yeah. like, while you're having sex, you can just enjoy the sex. Sure. Whereas if it was the shitty show, right. you'd probably still have the sex, but the whole time you'd be like, I you, do you, better. You know what? The second show is a better show. Yeah, you should come again tonight. <laughs> right. Yeah, now. Now that we've done this, but, uh, but there is something about, you know, the pride of being a comic and, and being a successful comic that, that is very deep. I mean, it's all I wanted to do. Yeah. The podcast became popular, uh, and I'm certainly grateful for that, but, uh, you know, I set out to be a standup. Right. And did you have a, and tell me about what your philosophy to your comedy is now, because this is what this podcast essentially is about randomly is like, I like to know if people have philosophies to either their work, their life, you know, their love, whatever it is. But do you have some sort of way that you look at your stand up now, like what role it plays in your life or in your world, you know, the way you approach it? Well, I definitely approach it differently. And I think that whatever philosophy I have or, or way of living life has certainly changed over the years. Uh, when I started out, when I, I think I was more, uh, uh, arrogant and I, I had a lot more bravado and I was uh, a lot more angry and I think I set out to be very provocative and shocking uh, but I, I thought at that time that I was you know kind of fighting the good fight and revealing hypocrisies and and uh, blowing minds and I'm not sure I didn't do that but I'm not sure it was essentially funny all the time there, there's an interesting moment I remember that you won't remember this but it was years and years ago and we were uh, both at uh, Just for Laughs in Canada Oh yeah. and it was backstage at like Club Soda or one of those yeah. gigs and Aziz Ansari was just kind of Right, yeah, arriving and blowing up, and he had this routine about sheets and the the, the three count of sheets, yeah. and it was a very funny routine. Right, but you were backstage and you were just like riffing on the routine, and it was one of those things where I was like, he's not really being mean to us, is, but like he's destroying everything about this bit and this person, but not in like a. It wasn't like you were back there being bitchy and horrible and like. No, I imagine I was like, oh, good, a sheet bit. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. Well, I mean, there are certain things, and you know, whether Aziz is, you know, knows it or not, or whether he's guilty of it or not, is that if you've been doing stand up a long enough time, that you're going to see, you know, multiple takes on most common things. So, so whether it's men or women or bed sheets or toilets or you know dogs and cats, uh, you know, things that that are known to be hackneyed premises, but not necessarily hackneyed material. Uh, that you know, there's going to be. I, I can certainly appreciate a new take on sheets. Right. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I mean, I, you know, it's not beyond me to do cat material. <laughs> but, uh, but my philosophy around how I approach comedy changed for a few different reasons. That once I became less angry and I realized that I wasn't necessarily angry about what I was talking about, but I had fundamental uh, emotional and anger issues that I, you know, that I think came out of, of fear and, and, and uh, hostility. That once I became more comfortable with myself, I started to almost talk exclusively uh, about my life and my brain and my first person experiences, you know, because I, I found that that's really what I talk about, my own existential struggle. But but I also it's, it's somehow I, I'd like to insulate myself a little bit from 
from topical material and from material that's you know fairly common because there are so many comedians it is difficult to have a totally unique take on something that is that is very common and it's not unusual now for for comedians to sort of do roughly similar jokes i mean i think that's always been the case but now it's just multiplied by by a thousand because of the number of comedians so i i try to stay as personal as possible because i'd like to think that no one's living my exact life or having my exact thoughts now, but that as a journey, like through that and what you learn from that or what like what you're putting out there, like there is a certain vulnerability. I mean, if you tell some jokes about cats, like and the, the jokes don't work, yeah. you can kind of walk out of that club and go, well, you know, at the end of the day, the jokes didn't work. Right. But then the minute you make it about you and your relationship okay. with your cats and it's suddenly Mark Marin up there sharing something with an audience, like how, what effect does that have more broadly on your existence and your life? Well, I think that's a, a pretty good observation because I don't. I don't have a lot of distance. So there, there is a tremendous emotional risk for me. Uh, most shows, 90% of the shows, I, I don't, uh, I don't have a character that I'm doing up there. I don't, I don't have that, uh, any real, there's no, not, there's the difference between how I do the podcast and how I have a conversation, how I live my life and my standup act. But that's a contextual difference that if I discuss something on the podcast in my monologue, that is really just thinking out loud. And then it dawns on me like, well, that that's sort of a rich bit for for exploring on stage. You know, you've got it. It's got to be framed a certain way on stage. I mean, there is a technique to what we do, but my emotional connection to an audience is important. And, and I do show an awful lot of myself up there. And I'm generally more grounded than I have ever been. And I actually enjoy being up there more. And I think that even if things are going badly on stage, I will handle it personally. As opposed to just be like, well, that was a bad night and those jokes didn't work. I will probably address it immediately on stage and move from that point uh, that the act will then become about me repairing what is happening as it happens. And tell me about that moment, because to me, having you know, watched you and watched you for years and been a fan before I had ever met you and, you know, before the podcast and all those sort of things, like a comedy fan, because yeah. when I was coming through and we suddenly started getting access to American comedy, yeah. you know, it was kind of, I guess, when you were kind of hitting and making some waves over here. Yeah. So. You know, I remember coming to see you at the comedy festival maybe three or four years ago when you came down to Melbourne. Yeah, and you have a bit. A, you had a bit about moleskin notebooks. Yeah, that I still laugh at every day when I open a moleskin notebook. Was it too demanding? Like too much responsibility? Too much. That your, your ideas weren't good enough to ever put in one of those. <laughs> yeah, no- yeah, yeah. And like since then, I've set that as a challenge. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not putting anything in this notebook. Yeah. <laughs> it's like quality control. Yeah. It's like a bouncer at a nightclub. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, no, you can't come in. You can't come in. <laughs> right. But it is. There's a moment that you almost hope for, and I wonder how if you notice this in your audience, where as an audience, and I think Stuart Lee's the only other person I would say this of, I would never wish another comedian to have a bad moment in a show, (laughs) except for you and him, because there's something about the magic in when something goes wrong that makes you come alive. Now, do you know that? Are you aware of that? What does it feel like? Because, you know, a lot of us, I mean, me personally, I don't think I've ever got to that point where I'm so comfortable with the idea that something could go terribly wrong. Like I'll do full hour improv, like crowd worky shows sure. where I'll go out without a net, yeah. but I'm still not really willing to go like three or four minutes or whatever down a hole into something that might not going to be some, I'll, I'll get out of there. You yeah. know, I'll pull like a comedy yeah. shoot at some stage sure. and like move it on. But I feel like with you and with Stuart, there's moments within your show where you're just like, no, it's necessary for me to go. What are you like in that moment? What's, what's going on then? Well, I think that, that Stuart, uh, you know, in his longer piece, 
pieces is as you know is is executing something that that does have a full arc and is going to go somewhere. And if the audience isn't with him, I think that he finds a certain power in that. That that there, and I I feel a, a similar way in that when things aren't going well, when when it's really quiet in the room, and when I'm alone on stage, there are moments that I have now, even if I'm not, it's not that I'm doing badly, but I may not be doing anything. Where where I'll just let it get quiet, or or something won't go exactly the way I want it, and I'll just flounder up there for a minute and just feel the weight of having you know a thousand people in the room waiting for something, and me just sitting there and just sort of like in my mind, I'm like, this is an amazingly free moment. <laughs> like they're, like they're, there's something so unique about it. But uh, I do most of my writing in the moment, like I, my jokes evolve from talking. So if I'm working on a bit, I'll start a conversation and, and see where the laughs are. And then it grows like that. So there are bits that I have that go unfinished for years sometimes. So, so my relationship with that give and take of an audience or the push and pull of an audience is really what's going to determine the course of a joke over the years. So if I'm in a bad spot or something doesn't work, that's usually where a moment can come where I actually am delivered from wherever it comes from, uh, the beat that I'm looking for, that in those moments where I have to get a laugh, just to get out of the discomfort, that's how I write. So, so for me, it's usually very helpful. Like I'll get to the end of things that I know aren't finished, but I know that I have not gotten anything there, but I do keep doing it. And then eventually something will drop in and I'll be like, don't know where that came from, but that was delivered to me. So for me, that's an important moment is, is what happens in that, like that expectation or that it's usually not that they're not liking me or, or something, but what you, usually what I feel is sort of like, yeah, it wasn't really uh, done yet. Was it? You know, is that, well, is you that can, the end of that? I always think that you can believe that if you write something behind your desk at home, you can go, oh yeah, that's done. Right. But there's a minute when you get up in front of a room full of expectant strangers where suddenly you're cutting three or four jokes in your head out of that bit going, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah no, they're not done. <laughs> <laughs> you guys look great in the garage. Good preseason, guys, yeah, but yeah. you are not up to the first team. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I don't, Sorry, Rudy, I thought you might get a run today, but you are not getting a run. Sure, I do, uh, I do know what it's like to bail but not with like not yeah well I've done that within a bit you, you know where it's sort of like it's going to take a long time to get where I need to go and if we're here now I better tighten it up a little bit um uh, what I want to ask though is that if 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 those moments are so creative to you do you ever worry that like success or like happiness would spoil your creativity? Like, is there a dynamic between, because some of it comes from, and by the way, I'm not like, but you know, your life, you seem like a person who is like, you know, having a great deal of success now and things are working out well for you. Do, do, do you ever worry about like, you know, you're, one day you're just going to be on stage, you know, being angsty about the fact that your butler bought you the wrong moleskin notebook or whatever? Well, there, well, I, I, I think that there is a, 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 a level of sort of luxury problems that are, uninteresting but my life hasn't changed that much not because i'm i'm i just have a lot of anxiety about things so i don't like moving i don't like buying things i don't because i don't like buying expensive things i i'm a comedian who was you know broke and, and struggling for a long time so if i have money in my mind it's sort of like i better keep that for because not you know something's gonna go bad so i don't my life hasn't changed that much and my anxieties haven't changed that much and my my sense of reality and, and what frustrates me in my emotional life is still sort of uh troubled but but more than that like i just got done i shot a special i i ran a new hour 15 hour and a half for this special and i've been running it give or take for about a year and you know i'm kind of tired of it so so 
Well, when I'm in Australia, I mean, it's it's polished and it's tight and it's good. So I will share that with the Australians because they don't know it. But I uh, I feel like I'm I'm not that tired of it. <laughs> yeah, that was like the best. You were giving me a real moment, and then you realize, oh no, I'm here to sell I some ex- shows. I did, I did exactly what you said. Like, <laughs> right. like you know, I'm, I'm I'm throwing it out. I'm already I'm already bombing in my my presentation. I'm gonna re- reconfigure. Yeah, they, that's not much of a sell. Hey, look, I'm really bored of my show. Yeah, yeah. But it's tight. It's tighter than it's ever been. Well, that's probably the most honest thing a comic who's got a tight show can say. No, but people, uh, I think the thing about that that people you know sh- should know is that there is a point where you're at the end of it where you're moving. Moving on, but it doesn't mean like you're probably doing it the best you've ever done it. Well, the thing is, it's like it's not even that I'm that bored of it. It's not a matter of no. bored, but what it is is sort of like you get itchy to do new things right. because like, and that's why every show that I do, even on the special, the, the night I shot the special, I tried a new organization of the act and I tried an, an ending I'd never done on stage before. I went on my special, not you know, I'm going to try this ending tonight, right? So that's sort of <laughs> how I work. And lately, like there, there are pieces in I, the second show that we take that we didn't use for the special. I did like a two hour show and I'm always like, I need to engage immediately with something that's happening immediately. So that's sort of how it all starts. Like, you know, things sort of kind of fold out. They don't all go away. But I think the answer to the question in terms of, I don't think I'm going to be a luxury problem comedian. I'm already a little neurotic and, and I'm, I'm sure that for some people, they're like, why, why is he hung up on this? That's just the way I am. But, uh, but it seems to me that I get compelled to do new, to do a new show. I can't, like, I can't, I don't think in terms of doing a new hour, but, you know, certain things reveal themselves and the conversation starts. I kind of look at all of my, you know, hours. I mean, I could go up and do an hour I did four years ago and no one would know what it is. You, it's this weird thing with writing material is like before anyone knew I was a comic, I know how many CDs I've sold. And like we all move through these hours thinking like, well, everyone's seen that. No one's seen any right. of it. None of it. And, and so, you know, I've got these I've got four or five CDs out, a couple of specials. And I'm like, and most people have never seen any of it. But we let those jokes go. It's sort of sad. But there is something about moving forward that I think, like uh, Rich Hall always talked about comedy being a joke by joke job application. Yeah. And I always do think there is some element of that idea that the comedian's mind wants to move forward. You can't spend too much time standing in one place or it moves on without you regardless. Well, the connection feels insincere after a point that like if you're not moving forward and you're not engaging around things that are exciting you at any given moment, uh, what are you doing? In order for something to stay fresh and engaged, you've got to stay engaged. It, it, yeah, so that's interesting to me. Like, how do you uh, stay engaged when you're working with another person? Because essentially what you're doing every time you sit down to do an interview is you're creating a show, like, with a completely new partner. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, you know, like, yeah. duos, like, work together for years to get their rhythm right. together. But you're essentially going into, like, you know, every single conversation, you have to find a rhythm with the people, you have to work out how you're going to work out with them. Like, is that something that now you've done enough times that you just let it happen and you're instinctual? Or do you engage in it in a certain way? No, you- I'm pretty instinctual because I have a need, that, like, the whole thing was driven by a, a deep need to connect. And, and I, I'm pretty, no matter how defined I am, in personality or character, I think you'll find that if I talk to an old Jew, I, I talk a little like an old Jew. If I talk to a black person, I'll be talking a little black. <laughs> like if I, you know, like I do have a sort of zealot quality that, that kind of happens. <laughs> and, and it's my need to sort of, 
you know, connect and be in it. So so finding the rhythm, it's only when people are sort of obstinate or, or non-communicative where it's a real challenge for me, where I have to stay on top of them to, 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 to get them to, to engage. But I'll engage however necessary, almost innately. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a gift, but it's also a little odd. Uh, okay, so here's, I, I guess, what I want to ask you about, which is... And I just want to make sure that when, when I say talk like a black person, I'm not being racist, but <laughs> I could, there are certain I could rhythms. literally see when you said that, uh, yeah, like, that there was going to be some sort of qualification a few seconds later. What's it like, you know, a lot of people live different lives than me, and, and you, you know, you want to you know, feel that they can trust you with their life. Uh, tell me this, uh, has the way you change, even that moment when you talk about talking like a black, language changes a lot and progresses forward very quickly. And mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot of debate, you know, always around the idea of, you know, political correctness, killing comedy versus the idea of free expression versus the idea that perhaps maybe there are more appropriate ways to actually refer to people that aren't, you know, so hurtful and prejudicial and stuff. Have you noticed the way you change, the way you express yourself yeah. has like changed over those years? Yeah, I, I, I feel what what's happened is a, a sensitivity has become required, and it's not unusual. This is not unprecedented in, in that you know, there, there came a time where, you, you know, you didn't call people uh, oriental, you know, right. or, or, you know, a mongoloid was a Down syndrome person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it really comes down to these weird words uh, that are loaded. And eventually, you know, communities and individuals you know, want to be respected and not diminished. By, by things that have become insensitive or hurtful. So you stop saying it. Eventually it just happens. But, you know, anyone who's fighting, you know, like, it's like, why can they say it and we can't say the N-word? It's like, no one's saying you can't say it, but just know that you're not going to be hanging around with right. them. You're going to be hanging around another bunch of people that say that word freely. And those are not really great people. So, so like, no one, you say whatever you want, yeah. just know that you're marginalizing yourself after a certain point, and that if you hang around with those people that are fighting for the word, it's like, why can't we say tranny anymore? You can, you can. but but it's insensitive to a community of people that are trying to define their place in culture and, and want to be respected, and eventually, I think it usually happens. But people are always going to say those words, but those aren't great people necessarily, and then they are insensitive people, and if you want to say it privately, fine, do what you got to do <laughs> just behave yourself in public if possible yeah so that sort of stuff you see more as like a challenge to be smarter and find better words and places respectful. Right? it's just like you know if you're using it usually if, if you're really uh, you know up in arms about the word retard mm. and and your your argument is like well i would never call a, a mentally challenged person a retard but i would call someone acting like a retard like like it's, yeah. it becomes this weird like if you apply logic to it you know, you can see how it would be offensive. So, so, all right. So you can't do your retard bit anymore. Is that really going to hurt you that much? <laughs> Is that really a fight you need to fight? I had this great 10 minutes on a retard. So like, all right, well then you're going to have to get a new 10 minutes. I always feel like actually that, that you, you're being done a favor as well, because here's the thing, this is how the world progresses. We know that if it's not in the next 10 years or 20 years, there'll certainly be a time in 30, 40 or 50 years when they look back at the fact that people, you know, use that word as a time that it was completely offensive and they can't believe we do it. Right. So basically they're, they're helping you by not doing your retard well, bit it's anymore. Just, it's an evolution. You know, people are stubborn and they get used to things and, and if they're wrong minded, you know, you know, maybe they'll get righted or they, 
or maybe they won't. And, and, and that's just the way it goes. It's like with anything. It's like political action, too. It's like with gay marriage. You know, there's a lot of people that are like, well, I can't believe it. And once it becomes OK and it's a law. Eventually, all those people that were like, you know, they fucking can't. They're sort of like, well, I guess it's the way it is. Yeah, I'm all right with it. But that could take a decade. It could take 20 years. But that's just the way shit works. People are stubborn. And, and a lot of times out of fear and out of their own fucking discomfort, they're mean. And, and that's, you know, that's just people. Yeah. So there, it, there's an interest in that, that which is like, I, I think often the fear is the fear of, you know, the, the fear of changing the status quo, to be honest. So as soon as right. the status quo is the new thing, they're like, okay, well, as long as now this is the status well, as quo. As long as they don't feel like it, it really becomes about diminishment. It, it really becomes about like, you know, I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the normal guy. This stuff isn't normal. It's like, all right, well, it's different. Well, why don't you just try to say different? As opposed to normal, you know, if it's not hurting anybody. So it's just, we all deal with it. It's hard to keep up sometimes. I mean, I had to deal with the trans community around, you know, the word tranny. And and I didn't, wasn't setting out to hurt anybody. But but the definition of what we used to call a tranny is now like it's, it's, it's isolated and, and, and freakish and very specific. And now there's, there's a, a, an entire community uh, around uh, the, that type of sexual freedom or those kind of choices that, that really wants to be, you know, respected and not diminished. And, you know, they, they should be afforded, uh, you know, that freedom. So that that's interesting to me, the way that you choose to speak about those things. And I totally agree with you, by the way, for the record. But uh, but it's something that I also have been challenged on, you know, over the time in the podcast. There would have been things five years ago that words uh, that we use or things that we said that now you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how. Now that someone's contacted me and said, hey, you know what? Like, and you're like, well, I don't want to have to fight for that. Like, it, it's just a word for me. I can come yeah, up but, with but, another but word. The, the fight, the, the, the fight thing is weird because you know you live in a democracy, right? So the the truth of the matter is, is that you can say whatever you want. No one, right? Is there's no law against you saying that. You have the freedom to say that. Just know that the repercussions of that and, and, and you know, the responsibility of it is what it is. And that's a cultural momentum. That, that's, that, that is a, a, a cultural progress thing. So th- that's the weird thing that, that the, w- whatever people are saying, it's like it, it becomes tricky when you are forbidden to say things. Mm-hmm. Like that there, there is a censorship. Like, you know, the, like if you do a college, that argument where, you know, where the, the, the drive towards political correctness is instituted. So then you, you have to execute your choice as to whether or not you want to play. You know, a private space is a private space and they can engage whatever rules they want. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you're on this property, you know, these are the rules by this property, but they're not the rules of the land. So there's just going to be there's there's no law against you saying whatever you want. Knock yourself out. Just know that you might have to take responsibility for that. I think that's the, probably the most interesting point, which is the idea that I think we want all the yeah, ability for free speech with any, without any of the responsibility of free speech that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Like you often find it in political debate where people are on their television show, radio show, you know, in their newspaper columns screaming about the fact that they've been silenced. They're not being silenced. Yeah. They are being uh, like, you know, their points are being debated or yeah. argued. Right. Like people aren't just patting them on the back for saying what right. they want. And I find it a little in comedy. I'm very much in the idea that it should all be free speech and everybody yeah. should be able to say what they want. But that doesn't mean that you can make your provocative joke and then like be shocked Walk when away. people are right. provoked by that joke. Yeah. And I think there, there are certainly defenses that are viable. I, I think that there is in, within the world of those debates that you know, some of them do go overboard. There are bullies on both sides and there is insensitivity on both sides. And there is, there is gray area 
that that should be engaged in and debated. Mark Marin there on Willosophy with Will Anderson. You can hear the full chat at tofop.com and any of the full chats are available there on the entire archive of the show. Hey, it's Podcast Mike here for our Willosophy's compilation series. Today's theme is comedy for the second time and up next it's Tim Ferguson. You might know Tim from the Doug Anthony All-Stars. He is a comedy legend from Australia and he talks about his career and some of his philosophies in this chat. Enjoy. did not have a latte. Let's just get to him. Uh, who are you? Tim Ferguson. Oh, I know. The way you said that was like you were signing off from a news report. Thank you, Will. <laughs> It'd be great if you just do the entire interview in this voice. Back to you. <laughs> Second question. <laughs> Second question, uh, as I warned you, was uh, do you have a philosophy towards anything? It doesn't have to be anything in particular, but... Is there one that you have? Yeah, I was thinking this morning, what if Will asked me about my philosophy like he said he would? (laughs) Um, And I thought, you know, if I have any philosophy, any approach to anything, usually it's just keep moving, which for a comedian is handy because, you know, if a joke doesn't work, you just keep moving so people think it was just a sentence. Right. It was just, you're just building to something. And, you know, in life, you know, because we're always growing up if we're living life correctly, um, you know, you just keep moving, even if it's round in a circle to fix the problem. So that's, that's my only overall philosophy. I like that, though, because um, I think in a comedic sense, like, let's talk about that part of it first. Uh, often the one bit of advice, if, if a new comedian asks me for any bit of advice, the one I can actually give and know it's decent advice is... No one else knows how your show is meant to go. <laughs> like, you know, the audience don't have a script that they're following along with. Yeah. If you, if, it, if you say something and no one laughs and you have the ability to keep moving on, they will just think that was a sentence in between the two funny bits. Yeah, yeah. It was just a wry observation. <laughs> right. It was a great one-liner that you could put on a postcard yeah, or something. Yeah, it ended in an ellipsis. Right. <laughs> and later on... You do another one, they go, wow, I love those little things. It's like they're connected. It's a yeah. callback to the thing that nobody laughed at before. Now I understand why you said that serious <laughs> thing earlier. It makes sense. But in a life sense, that I'm interested in it as well. Because I think that often uh, people do, when they make a mistake, and yes, as you said, we all are going to make a series of mistakes every day. Mm. Some people have a problem not being able to move on from that mistake. So are you a person who has come to that uh, realisation that you, you know, it's important to move on? Do you feel like you already always had it in you? Uh, I kind of had it in me mainly because I was trained. My parents kept moving around, so I went to nine schools. Okay. Which meant that whatever you were doing, you were moving anyway. How was that? Because, like, I mean, to me, I grew up on the same road. My dad's lived on the exact same road for 73 years. He has never... Like moved off that road. So obviously I went to the same school, I lived in the same house for the first 17 years of my life. What was it like to be a kid moving around so much? Well, you don't notice. In the same way you wouldn't have noticed you're in the same place all the time. You've got nothing to contrast it with. And so for me and my brothers, it all seemed perfectly normal and natural um, turning up at a new school. Certainly by the time I was in high school, um, the kid who was the most comfortable on day one in year seven was me because it was just another pond another bunch of fish you know look out for the one who might bash you 
make sure you find a way to either make him laugh or give him a bite of your sandwich. Um, so the idea that the world keeps shifting under your feet kind of set me up to be perfectly happy by, you know, maintaining movement. And I make a lot of mistakes all the time, mainly because I try to live like uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, you know, you're a man in the arena, you're going to piss someone else off. So just keep going. Have, with that idea, uh, you know, of you're going to piss someone off, because comedy so much is about the idea that, it, <laughs> I mean, it's subjective, right? Oh, and yeah. at its best, it's incredibly subjective. And, I mean, I, like many people of my generation, I mean, I remember seeing the Doug Anthony All-Stars. I must have been, by, I remember first seeing them on the big gig, you know, big gig on the ABC and just going, oh, my God, what, what is this? You know, I might have just been 14 years old, I guess. You know, the, the exact, I reckon, right age to suddenly go, oh, I don't know what this is, but I know this is something that I like the idea of. I once got a fake ID uh, <laughs> in Tasmania so I could come and see you guys in Hobart. Uh, with my fake ID. I think it may have been my first... My first two fake IDs I ever got were both to watch stand-up comedy, which isn't probably the most <laughs> sexy or rock and roll story of all time. But it, at the time, felt very dangerous. Do you remember that feeling that people thought it was, you know, incredibly kind of offensive and dangerous? Did it feel like that to you when you were in the middle of it? No, we thought it was all normal. Right. Um, we'd started on the street as buskers, so there was nobody telling us oh, you can't say that, or nobody would come up afterward and say you can't say that because people would just drift off. Yeah, move on. Yeah, if you didn't like it, you just went and did your shopping. So nobody had ever pointed out to us that what we were doing was firstly out of the ordinary. We right. figured everybody else was doing something like this. Um, Gretel Colleen was a comedian uh, we met, and her stuff was, you know, she would set fire to her head if that was going to get a reaction. Um, so we just thought it was normal. So when we did it on television, it hadn't occurred to us that people might be watching it and would be surprised. So we go on, I don't know whether it's the first or second episode, and sing Commies for Christ, um, simply because we thought it was a good song. It was kind of interesting putting communism and Jesus together with a chorus of take marks, take Christ, take drugs, which we thought, you know, the kids out there might find amusing. <laughs> it turns out it was like we'd started a war. Um, so, which was even better because we thought, oh, wow, so we're controversial. We thought everybody was doing controversial. Um, so it was, uh, it was kind of exciting to find that out. But up until that point, I always thought I was a nice guy. It, it, well, it's interesting, though, because within the dynamics of the All-Stars, like, the interesting thing to me, like, coming from a solo stand-up perspective and talking to somebody who was in that group dynamic, is that as a solo stand-up on stage, for good or for ill, you have to be all those characters. You know, you, mm -hmm. you have to be the kind of cool one in some instances. You have to be the, you know, the dumb one in some instances. You have to be the punchline in some instances all within your own act. You know, you can't create those dynamics and play off each other. But when you're getting together as a group, are you talking much about those dynamics or do they just establish themselves naturally? We kind of uh, naturally gravitated to what the Marx Brothers had done, which is you got the 
the snappy one, the Groucho guy, who was Paul McDermott, who's the, uh-oh, you've got to watch out for him. Paul was emerging from his shell as uh, an angry and rebellious, I'm tired of being bullied kind of short man. Richard Feidler, it slowly emerged. We needed a Harpo because uh, having all three of us shouted people did seem a bit monotone. <laughs> And my job really wasn't to be the, the warm water in between them. My job was to do uh, what every cult leader needs. Every cult leader needs not just, you know, to be wordy like Groucho, um, but he needs someone who stands next to him who says, he's right. <laughs> Even if you don't know what it is. And with McDermott, his brain is so big, he's always ahead of me. He just needed me to stand there. I don't even understand it. And that's why he's right. <laughs> and once we had that dynamic with the lamb that we would beat up, uh, it was kind of like uh, teenage Marx Brothers, where we beat each other up more than Chicho and Groucho used to. Um, what was the dynamic within the actual group in regard to, like... You know, putting shows on. Like, you know, who was bringing what to the table? What did what roles did people play? You know, how did that all work? Well, Paul and Richard argued a lot of the time. And uh, these days, Paul Livingston and McDermott tend to, um, you know, argue as well. Uh, but in different <laughs> ways because they both, uh, they both are fearful of each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sort of argue in... Uh, passive-aggressive ways. I think that should be a G, do you? <laughs> but it's... Uh, the way we've always worked is much the same as now where if you want to do something, once we've got the basic shell, you want to do something, you just start doing it. Uh, my new <laughs> feminist poem, uh, I didn't tell the guys what was in it. I just said, I'm doing a poem here and I'm going to do another poem there. Right. And they say, oh yeah, because we have... This unspoken uh, rule, which is you get 100% freedom, but zero support. <laughs> so you can, you can do or say what you like, but if it fails, no one is going to scoop it up. There's no going to be no going, safety net. No one's going to say, I'll pick that up and I will You're tag out there it. on your own. <laughs> yeah, it's just people stand back yeah. from the corpse. So when you said, I've got these two slots for poems, they're basically sitting there going, well, whichever way this goes, this is a good result. Yeah, oh, they go up the back and sit down. <laughs> sit down because that's how it works. And, you know, the, doing the poem the first time is always tricky because it's not actually a poem that rhymes. Uh -huh. And the new one, in fact, is, is uh, politically... Uh, politically difficult like like the last one was the last one was, was about heterosexual males and how they're not actually masculine um, and that homosexual males are not necessarily feminine you know it's all about how uh, you know straight guy bullies will say oh man you know those gay guys they've got limp wrists and they're all girly and he's a pansy but I just simply pose the question, um, if that's the case, surely you have to admit that there's nothing more masculine you can do than grab another man and fuck him up the arse. Right. Is there anything more masculine? And also, you think, what's the rhyme? You think, 
We're impressed because your pizza is Hawaiian, but you can't take a neck full of dick without crying. <laughs> it was just simply stating the truth that they would never have thought of, which is, you know, if anybody's going to be tough, right. it's the gay guys. Yeah, absolutely. Because straight guys can only have sex with girls. Yes. And the new one is about the dirtiest part of your body, which should be covered. You can walk around with your genitals. There's only so much they can do. But the filthiest part of your body, the most actively sexual part of your body, the part of your body that has to be the most inventive sexually, is your mouth. Right. And so surely everybody should wear burkas and walk around with their junk swinging in the air. Right. Because once you start looking at it, it's like, well, I suppose... I mean, I just asked people, what was the last sexual thing you did with your mouth? And you have it here uncovered, you filthy, filthy people. I mean, maybe we've been misinterpreting the sort of, you know, traditionally sort of Asian countries that cover their mouths. And we think because of like germs or air pollution or, you know, things like that. But perhaps it's purely just a modesty thing. Perhaps it is. It's their version of going, I'm just covering my dirty, dirty mouth hole. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, and good on them. Because, you know, everybody's mouth is a cesspit of bacteria, (laughs) for starters. A penis is, you know, it's covered in skin. It's really quite, you know, kept clean most of the time. Um, But it's just raising those things no one's ever thought of. So when I say to the guys, I've got a new poem... They kind of cringe, but they sit right at the back. <laughs> so talk to me about, because I it was uh, lucky enough to come and see you guys perform. It must have been uh, end of last year, whatever. It was before you went to Edinburgh, I think, uh, as part of the Edinburgh Festival. And so I came and saw you at the Comedy Store in Sydney. And then I read uh, Paul's book that he's just, Paul Livingston's book that he has written about you know, himself and, and you guys. And it's brilliant. And it gives people a real, you know, it's the, the book that none of you guys are ever going to write about you guys, so I'm glad somebody did, you know. And it's interesting to me, it was great for me to come and see it, but it was also very interesting for me to come and see it because I'd argue that the act is as relevant now as it ever was and obviously the new dynamic within the act pushes you to places, I think, where you're perhaps doing stuff that's more provocative than you were back in the day. Is that the sense that you have about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, because I'm in a wheelchair because my brain doesn't work. Um, <laughs> because, because I'm in a wheelchair, it changes the dynamic of power now. Mm. Uh, before, Paul used to be the one in the middle. He'd come out and shout about something. I'd say, he's right. And Richard would go, oh, yeah, but, you know, he is right, but try to do it nicely. Now, Paul is like, the guy who's trying to lead but I'm on so many multiple sclerosis drugs that I'm not making sense anymore Um, and Livingston's so old that he just wanders off. (laughs) It's very hard to stand and be little Hitler when, when everybody's sitting down eating sandwiches. Tim Ferguson there with Will Anderson from 2017 on the Willosophy Podcast. I'm Podcast Mike. This is our Willosophy's compilation series. Finally for today, it's Tiff Stevenson. Tiff is a British actress and comedian, and she has a lot to say about philosophical comedy and her own philosophy in regards to performing and writing stand-up comedy. A really good chat here, so enjoy it.
interesting what's sort of perceived to be rock and roll comedy or what's perceived to be edgy or philosophical uh, as we're talking about philosophy on this. This is good. Tell me about this. Um, Give me more about this idea because you see a lot of comedy and you see, you know, a lot of really fantastic comedy too because you run uh, one of the best, you know, kind of you know, comedy rooms in all of London. Yeah. And it, it attracts kind of the greatest and most interesting minds. But what do you mean by what you just said? Well, I guess there is... I know the sort of stuff that I love, and I guess maybe it's 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 more of an American bent uh, anyway. But the idea, I mean, I had a row, this was a few years ago, with Bruce Dessau, who writes for the Evening Standard. And I remember him going, oh, finally, philosophy's back in comedy. And I said something along the lines of, well, you know, most stand-up of a certain level is just sort of moral relativism in action anyway. It's a person standing up on stage going... You know, it, on a very basic level, don't you hate it when you do this or look at this shared experience and how do we feel about that? What constitutes cheating and where do we move towards that? Or, you know, is it OK if I steal if it's from someone who's really rich? You know, those sort of great like those sort of questions. Um, and uh, so he was like, no, no, a lot of comedy is is terrible, but there's good comedy that quotes philosophy and I don't think good comedy directly quotes philosophy. I think good comedy displays philosophy. But I think if you're throwing around the names of the philosophers, then what is that? You're just blindly quoting someone. I mean, Louis C.K.'s got a routine which would be, uh, you know, one of his big routines that you go, oh, that's Kant. Or someone's doing a piece that's like Sartre there. Well, that's, oh, that's quite Panglossian. That's Voltaire. You know, you, you'll see those ideals. But if someone's just blindly quoting them, to me, that doesn't make comedy philosophical and I think he'd reviewed a Russell Brand gig or something and it driven me mental what he'd said was something along the lines of I loved the show but I'm not sure the blondes in high heels teetering away during the interval got it on the level that I did because I have a philosophy degree and everything about that made me want to smash his face in and I feel like we've come back and we're like quite friendly now um, I say quite friendly but we sometimes Bruce is sometimes someone that I I'll get into sort of one year in Edinburgh when not a strong female field this year. And I was like, what are you doing? You're like actively damaging female comedians. So there can be so much snobbery around comedy that I find frustrating. And then you look at the ones like Stanhope, who I do love. I think he's excellent. You go, there's no snobbery around this, but he's allowed to be dark and pervasive and thought provoking and questioning. And sometimes I feel like you do that as a woman. People are like, uh, 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 uh. No, that's bitchy or that's rude or you're unlikable or any of those things. So, so there's – and look, to be honest, I'd love to just even just let you talk on this, but there are so many things in this that I want to unpack that I just want to stop now just yeah, to okay. make sure that we don't miss some of them along the way. Because, yeah. A, firstly, that thing you said about people quoting philosophy versus displaying philosophy is kind of what – you've put in words something that has been in and on my mind for so long in such a way that it's kind of – it's it's taken me back a little bit because I think okay. I could not agree with you more. And it's what I see in your work. And I guess that what I was trying to say, you said it in a much better way, <laughs> <laughs> but is that idea of going, no, I, this is me trying to take some people, including those blondes teetering in their high heels, because why the fuck shouldn't they be entertained? And why the fuck shouldn't they be entertained by something good? Yes. Like, you know, they're an audience. 
Like yeah. Chris Rock said of Dane Cook, he was. I remember this interview very. Uh, it was the time when every, the Dane Cook backlash was happening, and you know the kind of again that sort of snobby sort of you know backlash was like the the interviewer clearly wanted Chris Rock to say something mean about Dane Cook. And what Chris Rock said was, regardless of what I think of Dane Cook, he's bringing people to comedy who have never watched comedy before. And if they like Dane Cook's comedy and they like comedy, then they're going to start to look around and go, what other comedy is there? And if they have good taste in comedy and they develop a taste for comedy and other comedy, then eventually they're going to find my work. And partly because they first started listening to Dane Cook. So if Russell Brand gets those, you know... And again, who cares if like who it is the the drunken blokes, the teetering girls, the whoever the fuck you're judging, who's there in the audience, there, and then you can introduce them to them some half decent ideas. Yeah, but it's the ones who, the Stan Hopes, the Louis C.K.s, and this is what I see in your work is that idea of going, you know, I. I'm not going to bang you over the head with the fact that you're learning something. You're just going to enjoy what I am doing. But within this, I've thought about what it is that you should be learning or why I'm telling this story or the reason this routine exists in the first place. Okay. Let's do that one first. Okay. And then I'm going to want to talk about the whole thing about the way women and in that female comedy is judged particularly by men. Right. Like, you know. Yeah, okay. sure. So let's do that okay. one first and we'll get to it. So, so the first one is what about the messages in the routines and how I construct well, them? Or... Yeah. I mean, how much thinking, I guess the first thing I'm struck by is how much thinking do you do about what the routine is about, even if you don't tell them in the oh, routine Oh, There's what so it's much. About. There's so many layers packed into it. It's like a, it's like an onion. Um, in that it will make you cry eventually. And our <laughs> former Prime that. Minister will eat it. Raw. Oh my God, yes. Raw. In public. Oh. Twice. Twice. He did it twice. That's the bit that a lot of people don't know about his raw onion I mean, eating. At least he ate an he onion. Did it he, twice. he didn't fuck a pig. So, you know, let's let, we can play this game. I all mean, day. if the onion had been in the pig's mouth, you could have had each of them at one end of it. You know what I mean? What what a great spit. (laughs) Literally a pig on the spit. A prime ministerial pig on the spit. Oh, God. Oh, God. We're all going to die. Yeah. So how much is the difference between if you want to say something? Yeah. You saying it? You know, you going out there and go, I believe that, you know, feminism is great or that men sometimes catcall women or whatever it is. Yeah. Like versus I will just construct, I will come up with an idea and then I will construct something that makes that point without necessarily saying to people, this is the point. Yeah, I, I won't tell them the point. I mean, I work on a sort of mix of, I, uh, uh, I work both ways. Sometimes something, sometimes there's a row that I've had or a behavioral pattern or a social pattern that I've noticed. Normally what happens is something happens in my life. I go away, I digest it and go, but what does that mean? What does that mean in the real world? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to everyone else? And then I sort of work the routine from there two examples that I can think of uh for that was uh sort of two years ago at the Latitude Festival I ended up in this sort of altercation backstage with a girl who used to work for my agent and she was there with a friend of hers um over 30 wearing fairy wings fair to say I judged so (laughs) (laughs) this 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 woman refused to um uh, sort of like I held out my hand to shake her hand she refused to shake it and uh and i was like oh okay this is um 
I'm Tiffany and she just sort of went oh I've just come back from from Lovebox Festival it's amazing I only hope Latitude can live up to Lovebox because it was in creds so she used the she shortened the word incredible which made me very upset um and I just thought oh this is just some drunk privileged girl fine right. whatever but she was with someone who worked for my agent and then the the girl who used to work for my agent was like how was the show and I went into I'm not going to do the bit on air but I went into what was this, essentially a little bit of an extended rant about my accommodation at the festival and the fact that I'd been I was supposed to stay in a pod pad but I'd been in a tent and I'd got bitten by horse flies and you can probably see today I've got I react to being bitten by insects quite badly right so basically i do this long rant but it's 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 you know it's a work rant and she's a work person so it's you know it's totally fine and at the end of the rant the girl in the fairy wings leans in and says uh syria and i said sorry what and she said yeah there's people in refugee camps in syria so maybe you want to think about that and I was like, maybe I want to think about not smashing you over the head with this tent hammer. I don't know how you kill a fairy. That is the beginning of right. the routine. Also, and- I, I hated her so much from the fact that she said in creds that I assumed that Syria meant, are you serious? <laughs> like, I really assumed that she was, like, that was yeah. her young person slang well, for, are you serious? Well, I was and like, I Syria? Think, I think that's what I did as well. Because I was like, sorry, what are you, are you saying to me, Syria? And she was like, yeah, there's people in refugee camps in Syria. And um, and I was sort of my point off the back of that was sort of something like you know that's I mean, ridiculous. They should learn how to tell jokes first, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'd be here at Glastonbury. <laughs> um, and the the point was I made there was just like it, stupid reductive thinking. Just because I'm complaining about one thing doesn't mean right. I can't care about anything else in the world. It's like saying you miss the bus and someone going uh, the Holocaust. Yeah, you know. So so that was a thing, and I was like, oh, that kind of what aboutism is what they called as what they used to call it. In the Cold War, I think I don't know. It, it goes back to like, but it, but uh, what about re? What about ism? Uh, Syria just became this shorthand for like uh, Syria, and um, for how we are constantly trying to one up each other. Bearing in mind, this girl had blagged her way into two festivals for free over the course of one weekend, and she wanted to lecture me on um, Syrian refugee camps. So that came. I out- mean, technically, you could have punched her in the face and then just said Syria. Yeah, uh, you can't. Give- yeah. Sorry. So the the premise of this podcast, I ask if you have a philosophy of some kind. So do you have one of some kind? Oh, um, I have. I have a few that I try to yeah. live, live by, we'll and some of them are new. We'll Let's start going. start with one. Uh, first one is when it comes to work now. So this is any form of writing, stand-up, acting. This is what I'm trying to do. My new three-step is um, is uh, go in with hope and optimism. Prepare. So, sorry, prepare, prepare, prepare. Do the work. Go in with hope and optimism and then uh, surrender. <laughs> Let go. Okay, so prepare, prepare, prepare. Let's yeah. talk about that first. Yeah. What does that mean? That means do do the fucking work just do the work the work that's required they're getting up on stage they're trying out the jokes they're writing the jokes uh if it's an acting job they're going getting the script learning the script putting my best foot forward with it not doing anything that i feel like i think it was like tim ferris podcast or something we listened to years ago where paul had quoted something like where they say about work it's like if it's not an immediate yes then it's a no so trying to be really conscientious about what i decide to do and give it full attention which can be hard for people like us when we're always looking for new challenges and the next thing but I try and put that in terms of definitely for Edinburgh shows because once the show's out there it's sort of out of my hands and how people 
receive it and respond to it is out of my control but all I can do is write what I think is the best show that I can write and put my ideas into it and put this piece out into the world so that's the preparation that's the getting up every Monday at Old Rope trying out the five that's the doing five new minutes that's the doing the 25 or whatever previews before I get up to the fringe that was Tiff Stevenson I hope you enjoyed those three Little snippets from Wheelosophy over the past few years. We're diving into the archives for this compilation series, and you can hear any of the chats in full at tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WheelosophyPod, P-O-D. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, tweet about the show, share it with a friend. It really helps the podcast keep moving. You can also go to patreon.com slash tofop to donate to the show if you choose to, which really helps uh, the show tick along. Michael Wayne puts these episodes together each week. James Fosdyke does the amazing artwork that gets shared on the social media pages, so go and have a look at those. These compilation episodes are coming out Tuesdays and Thursdays for the next few weeks. Like I said at the top, we're about halfway through now. There's still a lot of cool stuff coming, uh, so enjoy it, guys. Thank you so much for listening.